listening to a production of the Toll Network. This is the Uncommon Cast Rx number 258, a plus three sword of light. I'm Aleph. And I'm Sono, and this is Common Rider Saber, episode 15, What Lies Beyond Our Resolve, and 16, The Streak of Light That Will Save the World, which is a weird thing to to say as to describe the contents of that episode, because it's maybe the last, like, 30 seconds of the episode that that's a thing that happens. Yeah, but... I guess that's like the new thing that is added to the to the overall story. I guess. I mean, otherwise they'd just be giving away the rest of the episode where it's like they could go old school with it though, like shocking and like shocking Toma's betrayal. Yeah. But of course that's a very different thing than the the conventions they've done titles this season, but I don't know. I think that'd be a fun one to do. Yeah. Cuz then you could talk about what the show what happens in the episode, but also it's an inversion because it's like, oh, it's Toma's betrayal? Question mark. No, it's not Toma's betrayal. Hmm. But we'll get to that in a sec. Um, our writer for both episodes is Hasegawa Keiichi. Our director for both is Sakamoto Koichi. What a duo. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's our Forza crew, <laughs> or part of it. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, they they both Hasegawa worked on Forza. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, so, like, they, they both worked on Forza together. Yeah. And boy, there are some bits in these episodes where it's like, oh yeah, you guys did Forza, didn't you? <laughs> um, I do want to point out a couple of guests in episode 16, because they've all got an interesting through line. Okay. Um, the couple we see at the beginning of episode 16 are actors Iwata Mayu and Hideyoshi, with their actual baby. That is mm. the actual child of the two of them. They played Aizaki Moa and Alien Shadow Zena, the Men in Black-esque partners in Ultraman Jeed. Um, Hideyoshi is also essentially the Mr. Kamen Rider of Ultraman. He was the suit actor for the main Ultraman in the vast majority of shows, going all the way back to 2004's Ultraman Nexus. Um, oh, all, all the way up to the most recent Z. I think there's maybe one or two where he wasn't, but he was still a suit actor in the show. Um, and he and my and he was also Jeed's suit actor, on top of playing a face role in that show, and That's not not even awesome. a like a a gyro in Ghost where he only showed up twice. Like Zed is a fairly prominent character. He's in a lot of episodes, like most Man, of them. It was it was always such a shame that they didn't find a good use for gyro. In that show. It is. It's a tragedy. But uh, Hideyoshi and Mayu married back in 2019, and she had retired from acting just a few months before uh, they announced their marriage. She'd retired back in that April. Um, I think their marriage was announced in June or July. Um, and then they had their daughter in September of last year. Well, good for them. And then along with the two of them is Hasebe Hitomi, who plays uh, May's editor-in-chief, and also portrayed Igaguri Rumina in Ultraman Jeed, uh, who was the wife of the human host of Ultraman Zero, who was kind of the secondary Ultraman of that show. Uh, she was also Hikari's mother in Tokyujer. Oh. And Koshikawa Mizuki in Ultraman Max, which I haven't seen. Um, I just found the through line of there being three very prominent secondary characters of Ultraman Jeed featured in this episode to be very interesting since Sakamoto was the director of Ultraman Jeed. Oh. 
okay. So I I, I don't know if he had anything to do with these castings, especially uh, regarding Hasabe Hitomi, who plays a fairly prominent role in episode 16, um, as opposed yeah. to uh, the Iwatas, who are just kind of in a scene as these incidental characters. But, you know, since since the Iwatas are so incidental and Mayu is retired from acting, I can't help but wonder if he didn't kind of call them in as a favor and just be like, hey, you want to be in this shot since we need a couple? And, you know, you can bring your baby, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, look, people seem to like to come back and work with Koichi Sakamoto. It's true, and... it's. Like, either way, it was a delight seeing all three of them as I just recently finished Jeed, like, maybe a week or two ago, and the three of them had essentially been my favorite characters in the show. Nice. So it, okay, it was so very cool seeing all three of them. It's outside our remit, but how was Ultraman Jeed? I enjoyed it a lot. Um, cool. I definitely, if you like Heisei Rider, especially like, mid-phase two. Mm. Um, so, you know, like, early to mid-phase two, even more recent, anything, if you're into phase two Heisei, it's very much got a lot of the same vibes. Um, I would recommend it. It was fun. It was enjoyable. Again, Moa and Zena were, like, two of my favorite characters. Rumino was great. I'm now watching Orb. I've just started Orb. Which feels very weird to me, because I think Orb was the one either right before Jeet or, like, one before that. So it was, like, 2017-ish, and it feels from like it's from 2004. <laughs> and I'm not sure what is up with that energy. Um, so it took me a few episodes to get into it, but Jeet is really good. Um, it has- it's- got a very interesting storyline going on that's very- it's- it's got a kind of double-ish storyline in the sense of kind of you're, you don't carry the burden of your parents' terrible actions. Oh, I do like that. I mean, I would imagine that's a pretty intense theme, because I, 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 what I do know of Jeed is that he's like the son of the one Ultraman who is a Satan. Yeah, um, he... And he, he's kind of a son, the son in... He's like 90% a clone. Um, and it's there's it just is very interesting the way things are handled. Um, Jeet has a good suit design. Uh, that's a, that's yes, a thing about Orb is I'm not super into how Orb looks. I don't like I the, mean, he, the main Orb suit very much. It is very like, hey, we want to make an Ultraman here. Yeah, like, I like, like the doesn't... I like the donut color timer as a design, but I just, I don't like the yellow on him, especially with the fact that he's got so much purple. He's a weird suit design, and I don't really like him, but I like Jeed. I like Belial. Belial's a great design <laughs> with his giant gross hands. Um, even, the the villain is, the other villain is very fun. Uh, the, the entire cast is great. All of them are amazing. They all have really, really good chemistry. Uh, Dr. Hot Pants from the Pac-Man movie, the Dr. Pac-Man movie, 
uh, oh, is, one is one of the main characters. Well, she's like the leading lady of that show. People seem to like coming back to work with Sakamoto. Yeah. Which, like, I'm very happy for that, especially given how much we're just like, man, you're a creepy dude, though. Or your camera's creepy. Yeah, he, he's, he's cool not as as creepy with Laiha in Jeed. She still is wearing short shorts all the time. She's essentially the same character she was in Dr. Pac-Man, except not evil or a doctor. Well, I mean, seeing as those were kind of her two things in that movie. Well, I mean, she's I, I she's guess... just a lady in short shorts with a sword. You know what? Hey, whatever. I mean, she is just if... the sword lesbian. That reminds me, on, on Kickstarter not too long ago, they've wrapped up a, a TT a tabletop role-playing game called Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Ooh. And I just thought you'd want to know that. I do want to know that. I will have to check that out. Um, but Jeet is yeah, good. Jeet I... was a really fun show. I don't know if I would recommend it as a as a this is a place to get into Ultraman. Because I'm not really sure what is a good place to get into Ultraman because it's way more interconnected than Ryder is. Yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say a good place to start is um, Ultraman X. Because that one. Yes, you are getting lots of the interconnected Ultraman stuff, but at the same time, it it does so in a very uh, accessible way. Yeah, I mean, Jeed also does, you don't really have to know who anyone is. Um, any backstory that you do need, they kind of explain to you over the course of the show. But, I mean, he, like, he uses two other Ultramans to make himself an Ultraman, and that's what his forms are based around. Uh, Orb is kind of the same way. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I know that, I think, uh, it's not X, maybe it's Zeta? One of the, one of the, yeah, I think it's Zeta, does, like, three of them, and it's basically, like, uh, the O's changer. Okay, yeah. Yes, he has like little medals and he puts them in the thing. Yeah, okay, I do think I think that is is that. Um but it's so I'm not really sure what a good like stepping in point is, but story-wise like the story is accessible and good. It's got a very limited amount of characters. Um so it's you don't get overwhelmed. I don't know, it's it's fun. I guess if you want to try Ultraman, it's a place to start. It's the only one that I've finished, so it's the only one that I can straight up say, like, I think the whole thing is good, if my opinion on things is something you want to judge by. Look, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to do all the judging, because, like, it's your first one, and we don't know a ton about the series. Which is, you know, it's fun. Yeah, so I, you know, I'll report back on that as I finish more Ultramans. Like I said, I'm working on Orb now, um, which I'm three or four episodes into. And it's fine, it's just got very weird vibes. The vibe is super weird. But I really like Orb himself. Well, that's something, yeah. Um, I like everyone in it, but I really like Orb. Good. Uh, I can also say that X is a lot of fun and has the extra thing of uh, Dr. Maki from O's is like just a straight up good guy. Oh. And it is weird as heck because I was like, where do I know this guy? Where do I know this guy? I don't know. He's so smiling. 
and like he's hero dad extreme and then i just looked him up on the imdb and it's like wait it's dr maki what How dare you no um yeah with with orb if you like akira from tokyuger which i do which that is a thing you all know about me is i really like akira i mean that's fair orb has a lot of his vibes going on oh um he, he feels like have. a very similar dude and he's he's got a a rival enemy confusing person i'm not really sure what role this dude plays in the show yet um who feels like he is halfway between daiki from decade and kusaka from fies oh wow that's that's some dark vibes like he's he's not as gross and terrible a person as kusaka but he's got that level of menace Okay. But he's got the, like, hanging out to harass Orb vibes that Daiki has with Decade. Like, the, the weird ex-boyfriend here to ruin your day vibes. Love it. Uh, so they're fun. I like the secondary characters, but I'm not really sure what they're supposed to do. Mm. Like, there's there is another weird men in blackish organization that the one girl's uncle is part of that feels it feels more like it's a g3 unit kind of thing or or something akin to like zect rather than like a full-on men in black thing but they never actually show the rest of the organization so i'm not totally, like he's just part of it and I wasn't quite sure of the scale of it until at the end of the second episode, they, like, fly a jet over what's going on. And I'm like, oh, okay, so they have, like, branded fighter planes. But we don't actually ever, as I mean, I'm only, like, three or four episodes in, but I have yet to see another person from this organization or have her uncle actually get any orders from this organization. That. Yeah. That's so intense. I'm, I'm, I'm like she's, it's her and two guys, and they're kind of they're like a weird paranormal research lab, kind of akin to Ghost, I guess. And I honestly, I just don't quite know what to make of the dynamics of anyone else in this show. I like them all, but I, it's just, it's got very weird vibes. It has got yeah. mega weird vibes. It def it sounds like it. Uh, but again, not saying it's bad. I am enjoying it. It's it, just it took me like three episodes to really get into it, and it's just the vibes are weird. But that's that's enough. Fifteen minutes of Ultraman. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, you know, I'm not really sorry because that's this is how we do. We like yeah. we like talking about stuff. Anyway, you know, I just I thought it was interesting because all three of those actors were prominent secondary characters within Jeed, which was a show directed by Koichi Sakamoto primarily. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting through line for pretty much the three characters introduced in this episode in episode sixteen. Um, even though two of them are unnamed incidental characters, but they do have speaking lines. Yeah. And they are, like, the first people we see in episode 16. So I just thought it was interesting. 
it is. But, uh, I guess to sort of get into the show proper, I guess we'll start out, uh, let's talk about the stuff we didn't like in these episodes, or, you know, problems, nitpicks, etc. Okay, so I actually have nothing within episode 15 to nitpick, so I, all I can do is I have a critique of a subbing choice. Um, which I preface with the fact that I'm not getting on anyone's case for this. It is a choice. Uh, Genom Corp are not the only ones I've seen make this choice when subbing this exact exchange in other shows. I just, I feel the need to bring this up because I have literally no other problems with this episode. So at the very end of the episode, when Toma comes back from the book and he lands and the suit comes off, May runs up and says, Okairi. And Toma responds with, uh, Tadaima, which, and Genom Corp translates this as May saying welcome back and Toma saying thanks. And I feel like translating it that way strips a little bit of the emotional weight of the moment. And by a little bit, I mean so much of it. Yeah, you ain't wrong. And again, I'm gonna, gonna have a little bit of a language lesson and there's definitely more nuance to it than what I am going to explain. I'm kind of doing basics here because I'm- this is not my first language. It's not even a language I'm fluent in. But these are words that I know. Um, and Tadaima is usually what someone says when they return home. And then Okairi is said by anyone who's already in the house to welcome them home. Um, to the point where even if someone lives alone, they usually, I think, say Tadaima when they come in. Oh. I mean, someone coming home from work would call into their home Tadaima and be responded to with Okairi by whoever else is home. So May greeting Toma with Okairi when he returns to the group is welcoming him home. Not welcoming him back, welcoming him home. To the place he belongs with his friends. And Toma responding to that with Tadaima is an acknowledgement that his home, his place of belonging, is with these people that he loves. And then we see the lady from the southern base appear watching them from a distance as foreshadowing of the coming destruction of that home as we move into the next act of the show. And like I yes. said, Genom are not the first ones to translate essentially this exact exchange, but in other shows. And to translate it this way, it's just I always have this critique when it comes up, and this is the first time I've had a good outlet to, like, explain this problem that I have. Yeah, and, like, again, you, you it's easy to understand why they say it, because, like, in, in, at least in the States, uh, there aren't really those kind of ritualized, formalized things in the same way. So, but like, yeah, it is, it's formalized, it's ritualized in Japan, and you, you undercut it as just like, hey, welcome back, hey, thanks. It's, it's a thing I understand in many other contexts, where they're, they're trying to do the localization thing, not, not merely the translation, but we're going to translate the feel and just change it so it's phrases that you might be more comfortable with. I, my favorite example of, of doing that well, you know, depending on who you are and your taste, is uh, the Aesir sub of Forza, 
where they they take Uchukita and they translate it as blast off because it's hard to translate the 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 feeling of kita into English in the same way. Though I have to say, space baby, like that's the best one. <laughs> but but they used blast off, and it's like, oh okay, so that's that's sort of the the oomph, the power we're going for. And so what I'm saying is like you understand how they can get to the the different things, but this one the like not the literal meaning because it's I don't know if Okairi and Tadaima are literally welcome home, and I'm home, but it's that more direct translation is the right thing because like you said, Sono, it's that's the emotional core of the moment, and translating it otherwise just it undercuts it or, or rather it doesn't even undercut it it just robs it of the power because it's, i mean yeah now i'm just going to start repeating and i, you, I think i think the problem comes more in tadaima um when that's said second because when it's said yeah. first it's like oh i'm home oh welcome home and in a case like this where it's second that's when the call and response is reversed it feels a little weird in English. But even mm. just having her say, welcome home, and then have him say yeah. thank you, like, even that keeps some of that emotional weight. It does. I, I would have, I mean, if it was me, and that's not fair, I know, but if it was me, I'd be very much like, okay, you can, ha you know, have her say, welcome home, and then it's just, yeah. I'm home. Or something like that. Yeah, it's just the the lack of the use of the word home at all um, just it kind of takes some of it out of the moment. And again, it's this is not an uncommon moment in Japanese media storytelling. It happens yeah. a lot. And yeah, most people sub it this exact way. So I'm not, you know, I'm not even saying that they're they're wrong. I'm just every time this happens, I have this exact thought process go through my head. Well, because that's the correct thought process to have, frankly. Um, and you know, th this is the platform where I get to talk about these things. Yep, and that's that's what we're here for. Okay, so going on to sixteen, because again, that that is the only. Criticism I have of 15, which is not even a thing with the episode. Um, but in 16, I'm not totally thrilled with the idea of the Megid shoving books into people to make monsters. Mostly because we've been doing that since either Deno or Double, depending on kind of how you want to count. And it was just kind of refreshing to have monsters who were just monsters again. I liked the Megid being these weird, nebulous horrors pulled from the ether to tear the world apart and remake it in their own design. That was a cool thing. And having them turning people who've seen Wonderworld into monsters is fine, I guess? But one, I don't know what they're getting from it, because over the course of Phase 2 Heisei, you, you got something from it with... With the Dopons, they got money because people bought these. Yeah. With with the the greed and the yummies, 
the the greed got metals from it because the yummies are made of metals. So producing more gives them food. With with Forze, it was so they could find the horoscopes to open the space hole. That was that was the point. That's what they got out of it. It was moving them closer to their end game. Um, and I could go through this whole list, but I'm not going to because I've done three of them. You get my point. But here, I don't really like. I know what their end game is. They want this this book that we're going to talk about so they can remake the world however they want it to be. But they've already been, like, pulling monsters from the ether, and that's worked out fine. Why do they need this new avenue to get more monsters? What does that accomplish? It's just, it's such a sharp turn from how they've been operating that it confuses me in regards to the internal stability of the story. Because the way that the world works is a load-bearing framework for the story, and you can't move that around too much, or things are going to collapse. Yeah. Like, and it's... On top of just the weird, like, why are you changing this up of it all, it's, it's almost like it's turning the Wonder World from this sort of ethereal, idealized place into something that just kind of sucks to be connected to generally because you're either pining away for the fair lands or you've turned into a monster who's going to get beat down by some sword dudes and like it much as i understand that the wonder world should be a place of awe and mystery and terror it just it feels like it's saying that this other world is bad which is like it's not that's not what it is it's these guys using it to to mess with it and it's just yeah like i don't want to say they should have added another step into how it works because goodness knows this show doesn't need any more steps but they should have done something to just make it feel a little more together yeah i don't know it just it doesn't make sense why this has happened because Having access to this giant book is not where they've been getting these monsters from before. They just- they were just pulling them out of the ether. Which again, I was fine yeah. with. That was refreshing. It was a nice change of pace. Technically, even Zero One was making their people into monsters. And like, I understand that is a classic common Rider thing, but you can't just switch back and forth. And even then, you could say like, okay, well, if they're pulling them from the ether, well, that's because these monsters exist in humanity's collective unconscious or what have you. Yeah, I don't- it's just- they don't explain why they have made this shift. Storius is just like, oh, we're gonna do it this way now. Yeah. And I'm like, Which, like why? <laughs> what has yeah, changed? I mean, fine. You do you, but... Yeah. It's a very good question. And then there's the actual confrontation between Toma and the other swordsmen, which feels weird. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because the first thing they ask him to do is hand over his swords and books instead of just being like, Hey, Toma, you okay? Because, I mean, like, yeah, uh... Kamijo was not subtle about what he wanted to do. <laughs> not even a little. He was very... He had a whole new look. 
So it's just, it's super weird that they're like, hey, give us your stuff and come with us. Yeah, and it's just, there's like three steps missing here. Because, look, if they've been ensorcelled by the cool lady in black, or, or she's got to some real core issues for them, that'd be one thing. But, like, we aren't really given that impression very strongly. Like, if we're supposed to understand them as being enchanted, like, they don't play that off at all. And, like, sure, the issues she brought up were good, but, like, they don't seem to be, okay, the first time you see him, you threaten his life unless he gives you his his badge and gun. It just... It feels so weird. It's like we missed a whole episode worth of stuff. Yeah, and I get and I... that they're here on business and asking him, like, what's up is a more personal thing. But after explaining that Sophia's absence means they take orders from Southern Base, Rintaro says he still wants Toma to fight alongside them. And how is he supposed to do that if your first step is taking away his swords and books? Yeah, because, like, even if it's like, look, I want you to fight beside us, but we need to take these things, it's like, it, it, why even bring it up then, dude? And like, the say something else. The way it's timed, Toma saying that he can't do that makes it sound like he's saying that he can't keep fighting alongside them, a thing which we know is literally the core of his plans to solve the mystery and how he got Kamijo to change his mind. Instead of just not wanting to disarm himself because he knows something's going on. And then he starts going on about Kamijo and putting his focus on believing in him and taking up his torch to find the same nebulous truth. Instead of focusing on the actual important parts of what exactly it is he learned. Because he briefly mentions a traitor within Logos, but doesn't actually connect that to why Kamijo or Kento's dad betrayed the guild, and that, like, the world has already possibly been rewritten, and that something is going on. I feel like those are maybe important things he should have mentioned to everyone. Yeah, it's just, it's really weird. Because, like, I, I, I think one of my big things is that I did not understand why Toma, even if he is suspicious of bad actors inside the Logos organization, look, even with that, couldn't just say, okay, yes, I will hand over my badge and gun, but all I ask is that you promise me that you personally, Rintaro, will hold on to them and let me give my side of things. Like, that would have solved this whole thing to me. Yes. And it also seems like something that these people who are friends who have literally saved the world together would be a little more amenable to because even with even with the the viper in their ear like just being like okay sure guys i see that you're clearly upset here's my stuff rintero if at the end of this you don't think i deserve these take them i don't want them if you can't trust me with them but hear me out because, like, unless there's a literal magical spell on the minds of everyone here, once they just sat down to talk these things out, it's not 20 minutes before this whole arc is done. Yeah, and I honestly don't believe there is some kind of magical whatever controlling how they see this. Me either, which is an even more 
frustrating thing, because... I mean, it's the curse of writing the characters so strongly and the plot so flimsily. Because, like, I believe that the power of friendship and trust and love and honesty can overcome all of this. But the plot is insisting so hard that we think otherwise. And that's just, that's killing the verisimilitude for me, because it's like, you guys already did all of this. This isn't even the first arc. This is the first half of the first arc. Getting everyone together, hey, we, we don't trust you entirely, Toma. Oh, actually, it turns out you're a stand-up dude. The end. Yo, he saved Ogami's son's life. You can't, you're telling me that Ogami would not be like, again, he could be the one who says like, hey, okay, you don't trust Logos because something my old buddy said? He is a liar, but we're going to, even just to humor you, let's just take this somewhere else, because, it, again, it's just so, they need it to happen like this, and that's how it's written. Yeah, and We need this to happen. Like, I can buy Ogami and Daishinji with the way that we see them talk to, and I'm going to talk about that in a bit, because that I actually think was done very well. Oh, and yeah. Ren is kind of dumb and easily swayed, and if you tell him that Toma's not actually acting toward justice, then yeah, I can find. Yeah, why would why would Ren not believe Logos over Toma? He doesn't. I don't even know if he likes Toma. But I can't imagine Toma and Rentaro specifically, who have this bond with each other and with Kento. So there's there's like multiple levels of this bond, and also they're both so logical, especially Rentaro. Like, logic- approaching things logically is his whole shtick. Yeah, that's- that's why he refers to humans as homo sapiens. And just- I can't like, imagine- that's just a highlight. He's- These two dudes who approach things so thoughtfully, looking at this situation and not just sitting down and talking it out. It does not feel like who they are. Yeah, it's- it's not right. And even if we go to, like, oh, well, it's because Rentro's so messed up because, you know, he did just have one of his friends get murdered to death. Even then, like, that feels like more of a reason for him to be like, no, we have to give this guy the benefit of the doubt because I don't want to kill my friend. Yeah, and then when Toma mentions he wants to find the person who sought power over the ideals of Logos, which means it's someone else, he's clearly not talking about himself... Like, Ogami and Daishinji just hear the word power and are like, well, Reiko was right. Time to betray our friend. And even, yeah. even so when they're... Like, even after they come to this conclusion, they're like, you can't do this alone. You need to rely on our help. Which, again, yes, that is the literal core of Toma's plan. But then Toma's like, no, I don't. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, the, the plot is falling apart. It is crumbling yeah. in our hands. And this whole thing just feels scripted in a way to reinforce the misunderstanding. And I know that this everything is scripted, this is fiction. But when yeah, you can feel the script, it breaks the suspension of disbelief. Because as you take in fiction, as you're processing it, you're supposed to process it as real. 
that's why fiction is enjoyable and has impacts on things and people. That suspension of... Di- and then, you know, afterwards, you know it's fiction and you come away from it and you're like, yes, let me let me think about this fiction and why it has but moved at the same me. T- but the reason it works is because uh, the way your brain processes it, you don't... Like, when you think back to, I don't know, a movie you saw, you don't think about where you were when you're watching the movie. You remember the movie as a story, as a thing that happened. You don't remember it as like, oh, and like, this is what I was, this is where I was sitting while I was watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You think like, oh no, this is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Like, it is, it is its own thing inside your brain outside of the, outside of watching it which is, it's fascinating. Brains are so fascinating and so dumb. <laughs> so like, I'm sorry, when, go on, Sono. I when just... you break that suspension of disbelief and a moment doesn't feel believable, the moment doesn't feel good. And especially in a moment like this that is serving as the genesis of the next act of the story, this conflict needs to feel believable. Yeah, it needs to hit hard and it does not. It's, like, at best, it's clunky, and it sort of feels like Hasegawa didn't want to write it or something. Yeah, or just didn't cause... know how to make it work. Yeah, or at least didn't know how to make it work in the time allotted. Because, <laughs> I don't know, like, just after how off the whole thing felt, I, I felt, I just wanted them to end the episode with someone dressed up, dressed up like they came out of a, a Tim Burton dollhouse and revealed that they're a competing narrator from the Wonder World who's trying to supplant Tassel. Like, at that point, I would have been I would have been back in, because, oh, okay, why is everyone acting so weird? Why is this scene so bad? Oh, there's a new narrator. Like, that that would be fun, and and this whole setup felt like the sort of thing that would come from an evil author trying to make this very you know, this very positive shonen adventure series into, like, an Inoue joint. Honestly, like, if they just would have had Toshiki Inoue in a suit just, like, appear out of nowhere and look at the camera and say something like, and now a new era begins. And then just smile that that freaky goblin smile of his. Like, I would accept it without question as just, oh, that's their weird bit of meta story. Fun. And you see, I have to make all this up because that's how jarring it is. <laughs> it just, it feels like it's checking boxes to set up the next thing. And, you know, that's fine as far as it goes, but it's undercutting the drama of the next thing because I'm, we're just going to be saying, man, why, why did you not say, hey, whoa, 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 stop trying to kill me. We're friends. Let's talk this out. Like, I'm still here for the show, is the thing, but it's just, oh, this next bit's going to be a hard sell. <laughs> it's, this conflict is not what they wanted it to be. And, yeah, like, I'm I'm willing to see where this plotline goes, because I don't think on, like, a grand scale it's bad. It's just this interaction was done very poorly. Yeah, it, it really is not great. Sigh. But uh, I guess that's that's the stuff we didn't get on with. 
Which means that, hey, now we can talk about more positive things. Yeah. Because, hey, these are two fun episodes. Yeah, no, they're, we have way more good things to talk about than bad things. Um, so, I guess, yeah, go on. So, I, I think it's mega cute and clever that the source of some eternal, all-powerful truth is the table of contents of this book that created the world. Because the table of contents allows you to find what's in a book. Like, what's in there and where is it? And it guides you to the facts that the book has to offer. That's very, very clever and pretty unique for something like this, and I like it. Um, it seems like having the table of revelations will probably tell you where to find all of the other missing pages of the book that seem to be ripped out, which will, at the end, give you all knowledge. Um, I'm kind of ugh on the fetch quest aspect of it, but, it, you know, it's a clever setup. It is. It really is. And in a show that's frequently at least gesturing in the direction of metafiction, having the key to the universe be the table of contents, like, that's brilliant. That's that's a fun way to bring us back to, oh yeah, Thomas a, Thomas a novelist. Like, it's just, it's good. I also kind of hope that there's an index at the end of things at some point. Like, I just think that would be fun. But I suppose that's something you can only get from the world which came before, because the index is at the end of the book, and this book is still being written. Mm. And, like, look, if that's, uh, if that ends up being the plot of one of the movies, that'd be great. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I think that's, that's, it's, it's too off to the side to be in the show itself. But, anyway... Uh, so my original thought was I've got to hand it to Sakamoto for that out-of-suit fight at the start of 15, but actually to heck with that, because I've got to hand it to Saikawa Koji, who plays Zeus, for his absolutely sick performance in that fight. Um, I did a quick look up, and he's a very athletic person, and he does parkour, um, so I'm just, I'm glad he got to show off his skills, getting to do some flips and some, like, weird kicks. It was very cool. Like, Legiel and Storius got some cool out-of-suit moments in that fight, too, but Zuos, like, stole the show. And Saikawa Koji deserves to be acknowledged by name for it. Yeah, agreed. Because you... Honestly, like, we've seen so many series where they forget that you have a cast of people who you probably got because they can move in some way, besides being able to act. So just... Yeah, I, I, I appreciate us giving some love when they get to do their thing, and also when the show lets them do something they're good at. Also, um, I, I noticed when I looked him up that he was also a minor character in the Queen Election arc of Forza. So, um, yeah, yeah. Saikawa Koji is pretty great. I saw that, and I couldn't figure out who he was. Me either, but... Hey, it's there, and, like, I guess he was there. Shrug! <laughs> Maybe he's the guy who was, like, giving her a note. and she Or, or one of the CDs, and she's just like, Bah, I don't want Maybe? it. Maybe? Go away. Like, I would really have to go back and watch those episodes, because now that I'm, like, used to his face, I could probably pick him out. Okay, so I'm, I'm interested in Kamiyo's comments about the world being written by somebody else. Because um, if this book, upon completion, can rewrite the world as the Maggie boys say it can, who's to say that hasn't happened at least once already? 
I mean, it must have if they know that's what it can do. It's a, it's a fun question, but it is kind of a frightful one, isn't it? Yeah, and like, what has already been undone that Kamijo ruined his life to try to fix? I mean, my thought, if you, if I may fanfic for a little, or not even fanfic, speculate, but like, I sort of think he suspects that someone made Kento's dad go all Fuwajuzo on everyone, and he's wrecking his life to undo that, or redo the right version, or however you want to put it. But, like, to me, that would explain why he's usually not much for talking to people. Because from his perspective, okay, once I once I rewrite this, once I fix this, the rest of the story happens entirely differently. He's absolved of all his evil because, retroactively, the things he did no longer exist even though he had to do them for the current reality to exist. The things... yeah. All the things he did... He no longer did the things he did because the events which precipitated them never occurred from now on. Time travel's weird. Time travel is weird. Um, I'm also curious about that darkness void we see Toma get sucked into, where Kento, like, appears as a ghost to give him the tunnel of light back out. Because uh, Kamijo said that the darkness should have consumed Toma, not destroyed or killed him. And I'm wondering if we've maybe got, like, a dark naga sort of scenario where Kento's in there, like, fighting himself? I mean, I hope so, because uh, I love me an evil twin arc. That's my favorite thing. Uh, I just hope that, you know, we can get Toma or Rintro or, or someone to be his balance. Because, yeah, look, I'm just a sucker for the... I, I've lived 300 years without him, and now I, I can't imagine a universe where he doesn't exist. Like... I need that moment. I need more of that moment. That is such a good moment. That moment was so good. Um, Toma does make a note that Kento is fighting on his own, and I'm I'm not sure, honestly, even what that means, or what I want to come of it, but, I don't know, maybe like a dramatic Kento rescue arc, like in the Dark Naga arc, or maybe like a Kiria-esque escape where he pretends to be a villain for a little while. I don't know. I'm just very curious. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, I love the moment where the really intense music kicks in and we zoom in on May and she like runs into the fight and tells everyone to get up and believe in Toma and then the opening starts and then when we like cut back to them, everyone transforms in the lineup around May who is in the main rider position, which she deserves. Yeah, yes, she really does. It's it's. Also, for me, it was very much a, oh, right, Keiichi and Sakamoto, together again. Because, <laughs> yo, that that scene and shot felt straight out of Forza. It very much had the vibe of that moment where the Kamen Rider Club is standing up to Meteor. And they're all, like, lined yes. up protecting Tomoko, because she's like, you're not what a Kamen Rider is. And I don't even remember his response, but it was mean and it upset her. And, like, everyone rushes in around her and then me, like... Forze's in, like, the mid-ground, and then Mew's out in front of him, like, how dare you talk to our girl that way? Like, she's going to snap Meteor in half herself because Mew was the best. Matt, yeah. It had so much of uh, that vibe. It really did. It really did. And please let May, like, get Mew on someone. God, please. Because, like... 
look, I know we've I've said that she's clearly more of a Yuki, but like if she could be Yuki and May, like get you a girl who can do both. Yeah, like I would which I think love, she could. I would love to see May go full Miu from like the Capricorn arc where she's like she completely flips out anytime like they like when they're all gathered around the laptop and Gendro's like, no no, he's not gonna go on the radio show. He like he's our friend. We believe in him. He's not gonna do it. And then he do- and like then the show starts and he's on it. And Mew's like, "Oh, that's it. I'm gonna kill him." Yes, please. I love that moment. And okay, so even if it's just like a split second kind of flash and you miss it shot, I adore the flashback to Logos with Kamijo, Kento's dad, Sophia, Ogami, and Daishinji all goofing around and laughing together. It's great. Especially yeah, it because is. Kento's dad is interacting with Daishinji and Kamijo is interacting with Ogami. Because over the course of that flashback, we see plenty of them, of Kamijo and Kento's dad interacting with each other and get a sense of their bond. And there's there these two dudes who really cared about each other. But it's that moment is this really small moment that makes it clear that their bond with the other senior members of Logos was also really important and the stakes that Daishinji and Ogami have in this. Because, you know, Ogami keeps saying that these two guys were his friends. He loved them. He trusted them. He wished that they had come to him. And in that moment, you're like, oh yeah, they really were. Like, it's not just the way he remembers it. That's how it was. And everyone who was there has really fond memories of these two guys. Yeah, and it's just, like, it's just so nice. You get a feeling for these people and who they are, and it really highlights how much the status quo just, it sucks. Like, if Joe's plan, as I earlier suggested, is indeed to bring back the better past, or at least expose those who are responsible for creating our current corrupt world, I can see why he'd go so hard on it, because that moment shows you a world worth saving. I I would love that world. Like I've said before, I want to know Kento's dad. He seems like a cool guy. I I just that smile he has when he's just ruffling his kid's hair. It's like I love this dude. I this dude's great. What's his deal? I want to know more. But at the same time, I also appreciate that it sets us up for a more forward-looking theme for the show because as frequently happens, the villain here is a guy who is trapped by his attachment to an idealized past, and that attachment has turned him into a violent piece of garbage, which is, you know, a story that is all too common in the world. And I just, I like that, okay, yeah, sure, for him the past actually was really beautiful, but we can't bring that back, that will destroy the good future that we can build, and that's... That's an interesting tension, and I, I really hope it's one that we get to stick to. Um, okay, so we're starting to get some more information on, on Luna, who I think might be some kind of play on Philip, or kind of the, the same idea of a character that Philip embodied in Double, which I'm very here for. Um, mm. We've got enough information on her to justify her being part of the story. 
she is some kind of being who can connect the real world and wonder world and kento's dad believed he could use her to get the magic table of contents for whatever reason um and when we add that knowledge to what we know about her relationship with kento and toma what we already knew and what we learn in these episodes we start to see kind of a nice puzzle being put together kento's dad much like kamijo believed what he was doing was saving the world um so i guess the next mystery is saving it from what possibly another rewrite cycle um and kamijo believes that it is something or someone within logos that caused kento's dad to believe this information and he left in order to find and destroy that corrupting influence within the guild that hurt his friend. Which, I mean, is not a thing that he did a great job of, but okay, sure. It's at least an interesting framework for us to take into the second act of Saber as maybe an actual for real plot. Yeah, maybe. Though it does suffer from a lot of that hand-wavy vagueness that is kind of endemic to the show. But still, it's it doing a good job of setting up the next thing. But also, like, we had best get Luna becoming an active character and soon. Preferably with a sword and suit of her own, because, like, look, I didn't like, uh, when, oh, goodness. What was the name of the kid and ghost? Ah. Cannon? No, 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 the, the main Oh, character. oh, Takiru. Takiru, thank you. I knew it was like, wait, okay, it's one of the names from Shinkenger, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, like, Takiru's mom. Like, I don't want Luna to go the way of Takiru's mom. Oh, God, where please, Where she's no. just a cool voice that pops up. That was so like, confusing we just... and weird. Yeah, and frustrating. Like, it wasn't enough that they underwrit canon, but they also just... I you mean, know, at, at least just a ghost one. Luna has at least graduated from like Takeru's mom to canon because I mean, she at least has a face, and we know why she's here. Like, we at least know why her voice is popping up sometimes. It makes no sense as to why Takeru's mom was suddenly speaking from beyond the grave. That's still yeah, a mystery really, to no. me. And again, I love Ghost. That was yeah, no same. That was not a great way to. That was not a great thing to do at the end of that show. No, it really wasn't. Um, so the Ugh. the flying dragonback fight with the rider kick versus rider kick was way cooler than it had any right to be, if we're being honest with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I kind of wish we didn't cut away from it to go back to the real world for a minute, but I get that, you know, we can't resolve that one tension and then have this other tension still going on. They all kind of need to resolve at the same time for the episode to, to end in a satisfying way. I get that. It just, I was just like, oh man, I just want to keep watching this cool fight. Yeah, no. And while I definitely do agree that it is a bummer to have to keep cutting between them, I will say that I like the way that doing so highlights the different scales and different concerns these characters have. Because we got this bunch of writers whose concerns are the immediate and the concrete. And then you have Toma, who's out there in the Aether, trying to mess around with abstract, intangible things like worth and truth, and, and bring them back here into the real world. Which, 
I mean, it's a fun dichotomy, and they are doing a great job driving it home, especially by doing those bits of contrast. Yeah, and, like, that editing was not bad by any means. No, no, certainly not. It's just... Because I, look, I, again, we were talking about, uh, about Ultraman Orb before, and man, I have some notes for their video editor. <laughs> they made some confusing choices. Um, this was not badly edited, it was just, I didn't want that moment disrupted, but I understand why it was edited yeah. that way, and the cuts were fine, the timing was fine, it was good, it's just i'm like oh man i want to see that fight though understandably um though i do love rintero putting the huge king lion book into the the like ryuki brace and it just doesn't even try to close its mouth around the giant book that was very funny yeah it really is because i mean look there's just plain limits to what the ryuki brace can do and it's also probably for the best not to tell kids complete lies about what it can do if you want them to buy it. Yeah, I mean, it is a physical prop. There's there's really nothing it could do. I was expecting it to at least, like, jiggle a little, but it just didn't even try. Um, so this is getting a little ahead of myself, but I do really like that as part of the framework that we're building going into this second act, Toma getting through to Kamijo that he had friends and he should have leaned on them and gone to them to weed out the corruption within Logos together. And, you know, none of this had to happen if he would have done that. And then in the beginning of that conflict that is about Toma having all of these friends he believes in and whose power he trusted in, and that being what got Kamijo to reconsider and tell Toma the whole truth, Toma then has these friends stripped away from him as the primary conflict of what's coming. Yeah, and it is a great bit of, of building and foreshadowing, and again, even as I'm not in love with how they put it forward in 16, it's a really good way to drive home some of the stuff the show's about. Not to mention we got those uh, big tragic bad guy vibes to boot. Because... I mean, look, I'm, I'm a sucker, and I love, uh, look, this all would have been solved if you'd just been a better friend. Like, oh, that's, that's deadly, but also very true, and I, you know, I like that sort of thing. I mean, even at the beginning of 16, Toma asserts that, you know, he's, he's confused, he doesn't totally understand this information he's been presented with, but he'll be fine as long as everyone else is with him. It'll, it'll work out. And then the conflict of the episode is that they're all stripped away from him by Logos, which he knows to be the problem. And I'm excited to see how he's going to pull everyone one by one out of Logos and kind of rebuild the organization from the parts that he can salvage. Like, it's, it's hard to believe this, but I'm actually pretty dang excited for where the plot is going in the second act of Saber. No, I'm, I'm right with you. Um, I hope that May having that key that Sophia gave her means that she can, like, lock people out of the North Pole base as her and Toma take over control. Same. That'd be really awesome. I And, you know, it would also be May getting to do some stuff, which, 
Like, look, she's she's had some fun stuff to do, but I would like her to have a, a more active role in the plot. Yeah. Also, it, like, I'm just putting this together now, and I, I realize that this is probably a very Western thing, but, okay, all the nasty stuff is at the South Pole, and the North is where all of the, the good and decent parts of Logos are, and... I don't know, it's sort of a, a heaven and hell thing that we're playing with. And, again, divvying things up between good stuff in the sky and evil on the ground is, it's pretty basic, but it's hard not to see it at least a little, because north is up, south is down, even though that's not actually what north and south are, but... That's that's how I tend to think of it because on a map, north is always up. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how we're taught to think of it. Yeah. Um, also, disaster running Kamijo through with his own sword was absolutely brutal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm very excited to see what part he's gonna play in the story now that he seems to be totally unchained and allowed to run rampant as he sees fit. I mean, look that. That last part is the thing that got me the most hype because, as as anyone who's been on the who's been listening to the show long enough will probably have noticed, I have many favorite kinds of bad guy, and every time Disaster is on screen, he is my favorite kind of bad guy because all he wants to do is wreck things in as brutal and flashy way as possible. He's he's got I a just... lot of the energy that Gremlin was supposed to have yes. in Wizard. But that didn't quite work for me with Gremlin. No, I can see that. Ah, oh, Gremlin. It's I I I liked Gremlin a lot more in theory than in practice, with the exception of like his backstory arc. Yes, because that was Boy, great. That was incredible. Was but any time that he was just kind of a villain in the show doing whatever. I was like, ooh, you want to be so much more chaotic than you actually are. Yeah. Whereas Disaster just, he gives off that, what's up, I'm here to burn things energy, which I'm, I'm here for. Yeah, I love him. I mean, like, sure, in fairness, he's probably only going to end up being, like, a side villain, or at best, a mid-boss who sets up the actual end of things. But, like, at least if he's not going to be the most extreme threat, he's going to be the most extra threat. Yeah, I mean, and, look, uh, I've, I've made a lot of references to Legiel and Zeus competing to see which one of them gets to be Kazari, and I think Disast has already taken it. Oh, yeah. He's just, he knows what he's about. Like, the two of them, they're both Uva. There's nothing they can do yeah. about it. And, you know, look, there's no shame in being the Uva. No, look, Uva's my favorite of the greed. I love him. But Uva's a chump. Yes. So just... Anyway. Um, so rolling into 16, uh, I really love yes. the way we start with these like tense looks at problems we're gonna face, either from the Megid or Southern Base. And then we just smash cut to Mei and Sora playing rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Like, it's it's just a really nice juxtaposition, and also a nice look at where we are with our heroes, and what they've got coming. Yes. 
it, it helps keep the intensity of all the drama from feeling too out of proportion with things. And, uh, like, the first thing I can think of is that they're trying to go for some of those build levels of intensity without having quite the the tonal whiplash or the like the overwhelming tone that so sorely plagued that series which you know good balancing that's important you, they know how to they know when to take a breather and that's a very important thing that honestly i think a lot of series don't appreciate properly yeah um, and hey not to someone... say i don't like build Someone has oh, finally gosh. acknowledged that Sophia is missing. And it's right? May. <laughs> I love that the one who is the furthest removed from this organization is the one that is expressing the most concern. Um, but mostly I just, I love that, you know, it's, you know, girls looking out for each other. And that, you know, May and Sophia kind of connected. But also just thank God someone finally acknowledged that she hasn't been around for like, five or six episodes. Yeah, and even though those five or six episodes are like, you know, two or three days, like, some someone should have said something. And like you said, I'm glad it was May, because apparently no one else is going to. Which, like, look, that's probably unfair to the rest of the crew, but none of them did, so maybe it's not that unfair. Mostly it's just nice to know that Sophie... Sophia being gone is at least on the list of things to address. Um, I also thought it was cute that Rintaro tried to cheer everyone up by wanting to do New Year's cleaning because he read about it once and that it was just very cute. Boy just wants to learn and have new experiences. Yeah, he's a good kid. His yearning to learn and grow while protecting his family is, is beautiful. And it certainly won't be used to hurt us before too long. No, definitely not. Certainly not. Why? Why would you ever think that? It definitely won't be used to hurt us in, like, 20 minutes. I mean, I think, for me, it's not quite to the point of hurting me with it, because, I, thankfully, I was still so jarred by it, but, like, the moment we get any further, it's gonna wreck me. Oh, yeah, it'll it'll be coming. Um, and it was also really cute how excited Ren got over, like, having New Year's Soba, and that Daishinji was like, yeah, I'm gonna make the best New Year's soba ever. Like, I didn't think he'd be a cooking sort of guy, but also it makes sense that he would. Because there's a lot of a lot of things in cooking that are being patient and smelling and listening and adjusting. And all of those feed into the work that he normally does really well. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's really detail-oriented and all about getting those little differences. He'd probably be a great cook. I just feel like the big problem would be getting him interested in actually doing the cooking in the first place. But, you know, clearly they've figured that part out, because he wants to make the soba. Um, I think it's mega cool that the editor-in-chief at May's Magazine is a lady, and also a lady who likes camping. Yeah. Part of me wonders if it's maybe because Yuru Camp is very popular, enough that it's getting a second season. But also, I like, don't I don't, um, it's it's a very cute camping anime. It's just a very okay. It the translated title is literally laid back camp. That's the localized nice. title. Um, I've seen a little bit of it. It's mostly because I'm very bad at watching things regularly that I haven't watched the whole thing. But it's it's fun. It's a cute show. I get that feel. Um, 
But I don't know, maybe, you know. I, they, Japan is a culture that does care about nature. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not speaking for the culture, but they definitely care about it more than we do in the U.S., I'm pretty sure. Um, but, like, the second well, they, they... we meet her... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, like, they at least don't go out of their way to be like, okay, the first thing with anything that is not currently used for industrial or or profit purposes is to figure out how can we use it for profit purposes where is japan they i mean japanese culture does seem to have a lot more like no this thing is beautiful for its own sake and therefore should be preserved which um i i can definitely get with uh, but it's just like the second we meet her she's this very well-rounded character who we are given a lot of information about in a very short time almost entirely through like visual means some of it is talking but a lot of it is you just you see her and she's very smart and has clearly put a lot of work in to reach her position and is well respected by her staff because i mean look at how excited may gets to be praised by her and then the way that may talks about her to toma later because it's not even like Oh, my, my boss liked the thing that I turned in, and I got praise. She's, like, listing off all of the characteristics she thinks makes her boss just a great person. But she's also very practical and concerned with her mental health, which is why disconnecting from her daily life for a few days every year seems to be an important thing for her. She does this annual solo camping trip to just disconnect and chill out. Like, what a cool lady. I love that. And, like, given what goes down with her in the episode, I kind of hope that she becomes a regular recurring character who, now that she knows about all of this magic book nonsense, May can just be like, hey, can I, like, talk to you about this for five minutes? Because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Like, honestly, she feels like she'd be such a welcome addition to the cast. And not just because she's another lady, either. Because, like, by the by the time she'd be in the running to be a new part of the cast, she's been touched by the Wonder World, but she's still got her feet firmly here in conventional reality. And, I don't know, I just with what we've seen, she could be really amazing once she gets done being a monster. And much like how I commented on how much I enjoyed seeing the excitement of kids, like, seeing Wonder World flashing in the sky back in episode 14... I kind of like how we see a lot of different reactions to people who have been touched by Wonder World in this episode. Because um, Iwata was just confused. He was like, why why is there a magic tree in the sky? May's boss considered it pretty much to be a stress hallucination. And then we just see May walking by a dude lamenting the banal world that he lives in and wanting to escape to a more beautiful and exciting world that he sees in the distance. Like, humans are weird and wonderful and have such a wide emotional range of reactions to things. And it's just really cool how we got to see that in how people were reacting in this episode. Yeah, and uh, uh, to sort of spin on that, like, I appreciate that none of those reactions are treated as inherently bad. Like, clearly there are a lot of reactions and angles that we're going to be examining in this arc, you know, given how the threat is the weaponization of those who've seen the Wonder World, but still, like, 
it's great that we can have that examination instead of all of them having a uniform reaction. It's just, it's nice. Yeah. And I hope that's that was a proper elaboration instead of just me repeating the thing you said back to you. Yeah, no. Because it's very um, similar. Sorry. Okay, so when, when Reika, the southern base lady whose name they've said like twice, so I'm working really hard to commit it to memory because just no one is saying it out loud. Mm. Um, so when, when she shows up, her- And I'm glad it's not just me who forgot that, because I'm so sure she'll have a different name by the end of the series, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, her name slides off me because I feel like it's fake. Um, but just like, when she shows up, her first comment is that Toma has claimed Caliber, which is interesting because he hasn't. He was supposed to, but it and both of the Zhao Dragon books vanished at the end of 15 before he left the the weird nebulous void that he was fighting Kamijo in. So how does she know about that? How indeed. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming her offer to take him into Southern Base was an attempt to gain control of him and his, his path to the book. And when he refused, she then stripped him of his friends and made an enemy of him. She's clearly got some nefarious stuff going on, which, cool, love me a lady villain. That was kind of what I was hoping for with her. And this is some really interesting setup, especially since I don't think it's the Megid that we see her on the phone with across 15 and 16. Um, which also kind of makes me wonder if she's some sort of red herring. I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I mean it's not outside the realm of possibility. But I just really can't wait to see what the payoff is for what's going on with her. Oh, same. Cause I mean the only way I wouldn't be excited would be if she was a red herring. But at that point, like, there's still time to rewrite guys. She's really good. Let her let her be the cool lady I dreamt of who snaps her hand off to put on one of those weird magic mannequin hands. I mean, look, the only... The, the the way I would be cool with her being a red herring is if Sophia is actually the villain. Yes. And she's just like, no, I, I had to save you all from Sophia. That's why we that's why we put her away. Because she's bad. Like, okay. Anyway. Um, and we, we get some new background on Luna. We get brand new Luna footage. Which is cool. Yeah, how about that? Um, and just the fact that she appeared one day to Toma. She just showed up out of nowhere and is like, I found you. Which is interesting. And then just becomes friends with him and Kento. Meaning, like, Toma refers to Kento as having already been his childhood friend at that point. So... Like, it's, it's just a very interesting way that he phrases everything. It just, it's a lot of cool stuff happening, and it doubles down some on what you were saying, where she's got some of that uh, Philip from Double Biz going on, but also clearly her own thing. But also, for me at least, explained why she's retained some version of her selfhood in the Wonder World. Because, like... I feel like a normal child getting dropped into the Fey realms would be a very different person ten years on, you know? Mm. Though, like, if she ends up being sort of a last unicorn character, like, 
she's she's some like minor goddess in the other world she came here to experience being human and will return and then returned home and that just has left her as this very singular creature even among the wonder world denizens like i think that'd be a lot of fun yeah um but the, what really has me curious about it is if toma had some childhood ties to logos or if Kento was just allowed to run around and play in the normal world and bring kids back to Logos with him sometimes. Because um, this is very subtly raising questions about Toma in a way that I didn't expect. Yeah, I, I will admit, I had not thought about that angle on things, but uh, yeah, that is a very interesting question. Because, like, we Cause... we know that Kento is born to Logos. His father was a swordsman when he was a child, and when he knew Toma. And, yeah. like, Toma didn't meet him through Luna. He didn't meet them around the same time. He was already close friends with Kento. Yeah, which just... Yeah, why would... I mean... You don't want to let your kids hang out with normal kids because they'll be like, hey, let me tell you about the secret background people fighting the monsters. But at the same time, you gotta let the kids hang out with other kids. Otherwise, well, otherwise, like, not to be mean or anything, but otherwise they kind of turn out like Rintero. <laughs> Something tells me Rintero did not get to hang out with a lot of. No, like, he does not seem like he socialized. socialized. But I mean, even like, like Ren. What? Like, who is Ren yeah. socializing with? There's no one else in Logos his age. He's socializing yeah, with Kento, who is basically a big brother to him. Which isn't the same yeah. kind of relationship you get with someone your own age. Yeah. Ooh, this is raising a lot of, like, intense questions. and all, But also, like, hey, why does Mr. Ogami just bring Sora around everywhere? Hey. Like, if you asked him, he would he would wait until everyone else was gone, just, like, lean in, like, hey, have you met the rest of these people? Yeah, I don't want that for my boy. Because, <laughs> you know, Ogami's great. Um, I love Rintaro shopping for cleaning supplies and, like, doing a little, like, lottery table while he's out. Um, he's just out there learning things about the world and having experiences, and I'm proud of him, and I love him. That is proper. Uh, it was also very cute that Daishinji went grocery shopping with Ogami and Sora, and it makes it feel like they are these two dudes who have been really close for many, many years. Because even though Ogami is noisy and I can't imagine Daishinji is good with kids, I feel like they kind of make compromises to hang out because they're just longtime friends who care about each other, and he's, you know, he's kind of used to Ogami's loudness, and it's fine. Like, it's just more than anything nice to see that in spite of not caring for loud noises, Daishinji is not the sort of friend who would totally bail on one of his other friends just because they have kids. Good on you, dude. Yeah, like, I mean, like, from, he's not from be what the one... we've seen, he seems to really like Sora. Again, Even like... though, like, probably not very good with Sora, but it's like, yeah, hey, what up, kid? Yeah, How's I mean, like, Sora seems like he can be pretty chill, so I, I'm sure that by now he's kind of learned, like, hey... Maybe don't yell around Mr. Yeah, Daishinji. Daishinji doesn't care for that. 
It's like don't don't yell I'm around sure him. I can like, I can run around and yell with with Dad or or Ren or anyone else. But if I'm hanging out around Mister Daishinji, just mellow out. We can hang out. And I mean, he didn't like books before this, but I don't know. I mean, Daishinji's in charge of swords. Yeah, swords are cool for a kid. I'm sure he yeah. doesn't like. And I'm sure Daishinji like doesn't doesn't just like give him one, but he you know probably explain some things about the swords to him. Oh yeah, like hey, why does that happen? And just it's like by this point, Sora has learned do not even ask that unless you are ready for to get the knowledge. <laughs> you have to really want the knowledge. Well, let me explain. <laughs> and it's just like, hey, where did you where did you even get that chart? <laughs> I had it ready. Why? In case you ever asked. Did you just... You were just ready to explain this all to my kid with, like, visual aids? Yes. He's very curious. Yeah, he's very curious, and um, he wants to know, and I, I want him to know. Not to mention it was a very interesting way for me to uh, ensure that I understood it properly. Dang, I, Shinji. Well, go on! <laughs> How long is this going to take? Oh, not very. About an hour. Maybe two. Uh, don't worry, I've scheduled in an intermission for bathroom breaks. I don't know, I just think that'd be funny. I, it's They have such a fun dynamic. Um, so where we see Sophia being held captive is very interesting. Because she is among bookshelves and giant books. Which are hallmarks of Logos. Is she in the southern base? Is she trapped somewhere within northern base to maintain the barrier there, which is a thing no one seems worried about, but is sealed off from interacting with the swordsman? Like, I am very curious about the visual information we've been presented with. Yeah. And, like, there's just something very sinister about it all. Some same time, though, like, I am very curious about the southern base's plans if they are the ones who are holding her, which, like, would make the most sense. But also, like, I just, I want them to make sure to give Sophia an arc where she's at least starting to try to bust her way out using some, I don't know, weird book magic. Whatever she does, she seems like she has some weird book magic. Because, like, look, all love to our heroes, but I just, I want Sophia to get to do a thing. She Like, they can even save her in the end. I just want to know that she was in the process of getting out herself. Not to mention, I just want to see more scenes inside what looks like a cool labyrinthine library, because that is an amazing trap to put someone in. Yeah. I, like, I, I want it to be kind of like when Juru and Tametomo went down to get Sayo and she had already, like, beat up a bunch of dudes. That's what I want. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because that's... It's just, hey, you can still save, but she's not a damsel in distress. She's just, you know, one person where you guys are six common riders. Yeah. Even a wizard needs a little needs a little time when they're on their own. Because if your friends are your power, when you're isolated from your friends, you have a lot less power. These are the rules. Um, I also think Reika's tactic to turn everyone against Tomo was pretty smart. Um, I kind of I kind of mentioned it before, but especially with Ogami and Daishinji. 
because they both believe in Toma and have seen him accomplish these, like, nigh-impossible things. But using Kento's dad and Kamijo against them, and being like, yeah, well, you didn't expect them to betray us, so why wouldn't this kid? You barely know him. Like, these are two dudes who have seen some things. And tying those former betrayals to a source that could possibly mean a potential betrayal from Toma, since all three of them have come into contact with this book, like, that's kind of genius. Oh, it definitely is, because on top of it being a good plan, because you definitely want, like, the two toughest guys to be on your side in this sort of thing, it's also turning their greatest strength, you know, outside of being strong, uh, which is experience, into a weakness. That's brilliant. That's some high-quality villainy. Because, like, hey, all of your experience? Yeah, it turned out bad that time, though, didn't it? Yeah. Sure be a shame if something happened this time. Like, boom, there, it's done. Because, I mean, Great for move. for Rintero, all she kind of has to do is lean on Logos. Like, pretty much all she had to say was, he's betrayed Logos. And... That was it. That's all we see her say. We don't even see her talk to Ren, because Ren's fixation on strength and justice means that he can be easily swayed if you make him think that your ideals line up with his. Especially when he already thinks that your ideals line up with his. Like, there's there's no convincing you need to do. And it's why she says one sentence to Rintero and says nothing on camera to Ren, but we have a full conversation with her and the dudes who have seen some stuff and logically wouldn't be swayed so easily. Like, I will hand it to Sakamoto and whoever did the editing for those scenes. It was a very smart use of that time and space in the episode. Because I imagine they probably recorded longer conversations with Rintaro and Ren, but when it comes down to it, they didn't need them. Because, like, especially in a series which has the hyper compression which this one like ghost before it has knowing how to use moments effectively is the key to making it all hold together and while i surprised myself by wishing that we could have got to see some of those those longer conversations or just given things more time to breathe because like look i'm normally a massive proponent of high information density at least they know the exact right bits to use to make us understand what we're doing. Because, not to get all meta again, but it's a really effective use of time, like you said, Sono. We, we might want more of the conversations, more of the interplay, more of the arguments, but we don't need them to understand what's going on. This is that plot cut down to the bone, and even if I don't love the way it all comes together, like, I admire the craft that got us there. And and as much as I don't like the actual confrontation between Toma and the swordsman, because again, that conversation is weird, I do kind of like that once it has escalated, and, and Ren is, like, running in to fight Toma, and they're all trying to, like, shout over each other, Rintaro just kind of has this breakdown about how he doesn't want to lose his trust in Logos because he's torn between his family 
and his friend, who he believed was part of his family. As much as he loves and believes in Toma, he's lived in Logos his whole life. We've seen over these past episodes how much the idea of Logos as his home means to him. And he can't just shake that on a whim, especially since it's his entire worldview that Logos has been guiding him in the right direction this whole time. And it's kind of fascinating that Rintaro is the one who yells at Toma for not listening to them, when they're the ones who are not listening to Toma at all. And, like, they've been gaslit into believing this lie that their home is telling them. And it's just kind of heartbreaking seeing these dudes used as pawns in someone else's scheme. Yeah, it really is. And at the same time, you totally understand where Rintaro is coming from because he just lost his brother. And now he's got his new friend who is also his brother who might be turning against them and won't disarm. So, and because he won't disarm, they can't really talk to him about what's going on. And that just adds to the confusion from his point of view. You, you understand his point of view and it sucks for him. And the kid playing him nails how much he does not want any of this to be happening. And more than that, I think he does a really good job of putting forward that he's he doesn't have the classic, like, duty versus passion thing, where it's like, oh no, my order demands this, but my friends need this! Because for him, they're the same thing. It's duty versus duty. It's passion versus passion. He's, he's in a real bind, and you understand why. Yeah. And, again, don't love how it came out, but they put it forth. Yeah, I mean, like, look, the, the acting isn't the problem with that scene. And I think there's, there's a really interesting comment Ogami makes that Toma should just give up and go back to being the novelist that they know, and how that kind of presents the glaring flaw in how Logos has operated. Because in this cover-up, Logos has become stagnant. No one has room to grow or develop. They're not Lancelot and Gawain and Arthur and Kay. They're just the Knights of the Round Table. The Swordsmen of Logos are a singular, two-dimensional character in a cautionary folktale, instead of being fully developed individual protagonists of their own stories that exist as part of an expanding lore. Yeah, and I mean, I have to say, they're they're doing a lot of very good stuff, or at least setting up a lot of very good stuff, about what happens when an organization's image, or, or like you said, the, the two-dimensional characterization, becomes more important than whatever it's meant to do. And like, I can't imagine, because I, I don't have my ear to the ground about Japanese politics, I can barely handle the ones in, in Sweden and the US, but, like, I feel like there is just some real-world world political organizations that Hasegawa and Fukuda might be just pointing their fingers at with this. Though, even if they're not, even if there are no direct call-outs here, like, I... None of this seems specific enough to be direct callouts, at least not at the level that Build put them out, because 
boy, some of Ooh, those man, were yeah. really specific. Yeah, no, build, build was going after some very specific and timely stuff going on. Which, you know, respect. <laughs> but it's just like, they're, I don't think they're going quite that specific, but it's it's a cool thing for them to be investigating because I think that, at least in the States, the identification that people get with political parties frequently overrides like what the political parties are doing or not doing as as the case may be um this isn't even me saying one is i mean like clearly i have one that i like better than the other but i don't think either of them are what i'd call good no but even like on on the level of not even political parties but like organizations um, I'm gonna make a, a bad example because I don't think anyone actually likes Whole Foods, but if if you see Whole Foods and you think like, oh, well they're they're doing a lot of organic and sustainable stuff, and then you realize that Whole Foods is owned by Amazon. Oh, mm, don't like that. Don't like that even a little. <laughs> like we're here, it feels like Logos is is the Logos that we know is this very small, organic group of people who who just want to make the world better and then you've got logos as this this larger thing that encompasses also the southern base and you're like oh there's there's a bigger darker thing going on here but behind these like six dudes that we really like which hey i'm great place to put a story but also like yeah you need to you need to be aware of the things going on on behind the the people you really like, but uh, so spe- it's a speaking very of, beautiful thing. Like you kind oh. of called that there might be a dark underbelly to logos like months ago. Um, so good on you for seeing that potential coming. Um, I feel like it's one of the more interesting turns that this story can take. Even as right now, it's kind of breaking my heart a little bit. Yeah, I mean. I confess, I didn't even think it was going to be a real thing, just like the sort of thing you'd have to believe to turn on it so entirely. But like, hey, I'm, I'm glad to see I was onto something. That's always fun. Um, okay, so now we, we come to the end of the episode, which is the title of the episode. Um, and the title of our episode. Yes, actually. Yeah, I've not thought about that. Uh, Yuri is delightful. It's true. <laughs> I don't know why I find him so incredibly charming. Maybe it's just because he's been this fairly ominous presence every time we've seen him. But once he's here to actually, like, be part of the show, he's just like, Hey, how's it going? Want to see me do something really cool? And I like <laughs> I like that energy. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, and he just, he seems like he's gonna be a really fun presence. A light in these dark times, if you will. Yeah, agreed. Because, like, he seemed like a cool guy to begin with, and now he's just wild, and he's such a gold ranger. God, like, he I, I he hate... reminds me of Noel. Like, the energy yeah, exactly. that he brings in that moment where he introduces himself reminds me so much of Noel. Yeah, the only way he could be more Noel, including, like, he's got the colors... <laughs> He's got, he's got the, he's got the charm. The only way he could actually get more Noel would have been if he backflipped into screen. Yeah, like do a backflip, do it. Though, like I, I confess, I was just very much like, wait, that's not Merlin. That's just a sword. That dude's a sword. 
But at least it explains kind of why he's there for the Trial of the King Arthur book, because, you know, King Arthur also gets going with a sword, and the, the book gives you the, the sword that turns into the awful-looking robot that turns you into a sword. Him being a sword is maybe part of why I like him so much, because I do love me a good sentient sword. That got me through oh, yeah. way more of Bleach than Bleach had any right to get me through. <laughs> nice. I do I, love I me some like... sentient swords. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a classic thing, and I just want to stat him up and, like, drop him into a game somewhere. <laughs> like, okay, you get this, this plus three sword of light, and, like, X times a day, he just turn into a dude. I don't know what that dude do, but, you know, he, he can it's, do it. It's just, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, don't, hey, don't ask questions. He's a sword that's also a dude. That happens. And hey, speaking of, um, I guess we kind of have a new suit, maybe, <laughs> for for Common Rider Psycho. I wish y'all could As see in... that I just I just put a line of question marks. Yeah. I, this, this man's a sword. How do I even talk about it? Like it's a cool looking sword. But I can't, like, dissect it as an outfit, because it's a sword. It's cool that he turns into a sword. Like I said, love me some sentient swords. But, like, what am I supposed to talk about here? Guys, please cut me some slack. Yeah, I got nothing either. I mean, like you said, he's a cool sword. But mostly I'm just like, I don't know, I, I like the dude. Dude looks cool. Yeah. But we already know that. He's, he's an attractive dude who I thought was a Merlin shows what I know. Um, but anyway, um, I see we have some final thoughts this um, time through. Sort so. of. I just didn't know where else to put this. Um, because as I was writing the notes for the episode, it kind of occurred to me that Toma and Daichi both have surnames that start with Kami, but they both use different kanji for Kami. Um, Kamiyama uses the kanji for what would be loosely interpreted as god in the Shinto sense, or, I mean, in a general sense, um, where Kamijo uses the kanji for above. Um, and, you know, Yama is mountain, so I some mountain god god on the mountain something, I'm not totally sure. Um, but those are, those are the kanji for, for Toma's surname. Um, I had a hard time with the other one, in Kamijo's name, I, I, it might be a kanji for a counter, or I, I kept coming back to, like, Ray of Light. I'm not really sure. Um, someone who knows kanji better than I do, if you understand the way they're writing his name, please, I would happily listen to you explain it to me. Um, because, again, with fictional names, especially in Japanese where you're, you're choosing these kanji, um... They are deciding the meaning for these things, and sometimes it's yeah. kind of fascinating. One day I will have an excuse to uh, go on my ramble about how uh, Shroud's actual name, Fumine, is written, because there is a lot of meaning in the way they chose to write her name. Um, so I'm just- I'm, I'm very, very interested in why- their names are written the way they are. That's very understandable. It's... Yeah. 
again, like, just like I'd said earlier with the North and South thing, like, this this feels related to that, and I, I feel like there's some some name stuff and, and stuff like that that's definitely worth keeping half an eye on. Yeah, I, I, so. I feel like there is some meaning in in their names. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I Well, I look forward to hopefully finding out or, or at least doing some investigating into it because there's, there's a lot of levels going on here and I'm, I'm always happy when things have a lot of levels. But uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for our coverage of these two episodes. Uh, unless you have anything to add? Uh, no. Last minute? No, nothing that I haven't already said. Yeah, just, it's it's exciting stuff, and definitely looking forward to seeing how this next arc goes. But, until we actually get to talk about that, for all of us here at the Uncommon Cast RX, RX and the rest of the Tor Network, I'm Aleph. And I'm Sano. And don't get kicked by a horse and die.